What's your name? Chris Crone. What's your current job, and how long have you held it? Uh, current job is with the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks AAA affiliate. I'm the manager for the Reno Aces. How many years have you worked in baseball as a player and as a coach? Very good question. Let me uh, go here with my hope of my, my elementary math can take over uh, 37 years. What do your sons do for a living? They play professional baseball as well. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Chris Crone. He has spent his entire adult life working in baseball. And at the time of his recording, not only do his sons play professional baseball, they are in the major leagues. We're going to talk about fathers and sons through the lens of baseball from minor league towns and chasing major league dreams, plus a surprise story or two about the greatest basketball player of all time. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. Chris, welcome back to Albuquerque. I know you were born here, even though you don't remember it, but welcome back. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I love uh, I love the Albuquerque uh, theme because, uh, you know, it's on it's on everything. It's on, you know, where were you born? Uh, Albuquerque. I mean, I can't even use it as a as one of my password saving uh, hints because I don't know how to spell it. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I lived here for I was born here, lived here for a year and a half. Um, and the rest is history. So you grew up in Los Angeles, and according to Baseball Reference in my notes, you got drafted three times in 13 months because back in the 80s, baseball had a draft in January and a draft in June. Explain what went into those three drafts and why you finally decided to sign. Um, first of all, I went to a, I went to a junior college, uh, Santa Ana Junior College, right there near Anaheim Stadium, uh, Fullerton area. And at the time, I really wasn't that good of a player. Uh, coming out of high school, I was just an average. I was a, probably above average player, but I didn't really do uh, enough to, to get spotted by a, a college or obviously the pros at that point. Uh, and then my very first, um, we used to have like almost two seasons of, um, of, of junior college. We had that winter time where we would play the Cal State Fullertons, Long Beach States, and we were just uh, Santa Ana Junior College. And, and, you know, all of a sudden they're out, they're out there watching so-and-so pitch from Cal State Fullerton, and, and I'm up there hitting, and I, I take him yard, or I hit a double in the gap, and it just sort of happens that whoever – I got spotted in, at that time of the year, and then the January draft would come, and I got, I got drafted by the Atlanta Braves. Uh, and then I could, I, could, I could play that whole season out my, my freshman year in college, and um, – that was draft and follow. Draft back and then. follow. So I could play that year, and then they could make a decision before the June draft would come up. Well, it just so happened that I, I injured my left knee. I tore my ACL the first, the last practice before our first game. So I didn't get a chance to play that season, and I was out, and they didn't want to sign me that year. But I did get drafted, sort of weirdly, by the Tigers 
in the June draft because I was, you know, I was I was doing some good things back then, you know, uh, and I didn't sign with the Tigers. So then I came back and did my sophomore year, and then the Braves drafted me again, and uh, um, I played about seven or eight, ten games, and I hurt tore a ligament in my elbow. So my college career wasn't very eventful, but I did get drafted three times. Two of them I couldn't couldn't really sign. They didn't even offer me anything. And then the third time, the guy comes into the house and I got a cast on my arm. And he, uh, my mom and my dad are there in the front room. And he goes, "We'd like to offer you a professional baseball contract, which is what I wanted to do my entire life. Uh, and we'd like to give you a twenty five thousand dollars signing bonus." And I'm in my inside my belly. I'm just going, "Yeah, let's go, let's take this." And I'm kind of jump. I'm not jumping up and down, but I sort of am. And my dad's the smartest guy in the world. To me, because hey, can we go talk about this? So we went in the back room, and I'm jumping up and down. <laughs> I'm going, "Hell yeah, I'm going to be a pro ball player," you know. And um, uh, and he goes, "Hey, just calm down, calm down. You know, there's a pretty good chance you, we're going to take this, but we need to get some all the other particulars." But I ended up, I ended up signing and uh, starting my road to to, uh, to the big leagues, so to speak. So I want to talk about some of your stops in minor league baseball. I swear I'm not going to ask about all of them, but I like asking about the first one. 1984, the Pulaski Braves in Virginia. Had you been to, to, to any of the states in the Appalachian League, this California boy, before that? Heck no, no, it's Pulaski pronunciation. Okay, Pulaski. thank you. No, it my 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 eye-opening experience with Pulaski, Virginia was I got there late because of the injury. They were already 30 games into their season maybe or 20 to 30 games. And I knew another player on the team. We went to the same junior college. So he just so happens to be living with seven to eight other guys in this big ass house. And I go, "Well, you can squeeze one more guy in there, can't you?" He go, "Well, we will try." So I ended up living in a, in a, on a flat bench underneath the stairwell that went up to the, up the floor. They had, you know, back in the day they had that, like, it was maybe a, you could open it up and put pillows or some uh-huh. stuff in there. Well, that's where I slept for. What was your render. rent? I don't even remember. It was very inexpensive. I may have even got it for nothing. I don't yeah. know because uh, everybody else took care of that. Was this like but a frat house or were you guys it was, clean? It was, no, you... it was, it was, <laughs> so, I can't say a frat house. But there was definitely some, some of that activity going around. But there was the cleanliness of the place was down at the bottom end, okay. near near zero. Uh, one bathroom. Oh my god! Everybody or, that I can remember, everybody trying to use that one bathroom, and it wasn't. Uh, but again, you were playing professional baseball, right. didn't really care, and it was uh, it was it was it was fun, and it's a good it's a good memory. I, I googled uh, Calfee Park. Is that how it's pronounced? Calfee. I don't know. I don't remember the name of that place. Um, so it's been renovated. It's part of the National Register of Historic Places. But what stood out is that there was houses in right field. Yes. From the houses, they could watch the game. Absolutely, no doubt. There was a street in between the houses and, and the right field fence. You know, I, I remember uh, showering in the, in the clubhouse where they have um, you know forklift uh, things on you know one of those uh, wooden uh, yeah. Uh, uh, people know what we're talking yeah. about. Crates or whatever that you had to sit stand on, but they would float eventually if you didn't get in there early because it wasn't, didn't drain real well. And I would never forget the very first game I played there. Sean Abner, who remember was the that. number one yeah. number one pick by the New York Mets that year, for number one pick in the, in the draft. He's playing center field. I hit my first ball over the fence. I thought it was a home run, 
But no, Sean Abner, the best player, the number one pick, goes up and steals it from me. So I lose a home run, but I end up hitting another one later in the game for my first uh, home run of my career right there. That's good that you hit a home run in your, the first game of your career because I'm going to ask you much later about the last game of your playing career. Right on. Uh, 1986, you played for the Durham Bulls when they were still a single-A team. Now, the movie, Bull Durham, came out in 1988, and I'm pretty sure that the filming took place after the 87 season. Did you guys have any idea about what was, what was in store for that ballpark in that city? Not even close. Uh, if, it w- if we did... Not we had I had about ten ten teammates stick back around for that off season because I think it was filmed in the off season of '86 going into the summer. Yeah, because you can see the their breath sometimes. Yeah, it's, it was the winter. It was the winter time, and uh, I watched the movie now or on another bus ride. I've seen it a hundred times, and you know if, if I would have known it was going to be as big as it was, I would have stuck around. But heck, I just got married. I had to go back home, go work, go get another job, and try to you know make ends meet. Uh, but when the movie came out, you see all my uh, extra teammates, uh, old teammates in the movie. The pitcher that's thrown to um, Crash Davis, Crash, Kevin Costner. Yeah, uh, he it was a teammate. Uh, you see the bar scenes. You see guys sitting in the in the booths of teammates, and the shower scene where the guy throws the bats in uh-huh. the shower. I mean, it's the old teammates, and there must have been. Like I said, seven to ten uh, ex-teammates that stuck around, and you know they were they were all single guys that, that didn't have anything else to do, and they probably got a pretty penny to, to help out in the process. Back then, if you hit the bull, did you really win a stake? You did win a stake, and it, back then it was in fair territory. But my problem was it was in right field, and I was a left hand or I was a right-handed hitter, and I never hit any balls over there, so I I had to um, I couldn't I couldn't have it. I never got a stake, that's for sure. What were some of the other things that that you just remember about the old Durham ballpark um that the 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 depiction of the the movie and everything was almost exactly the same I mean the bus that we used for the for my season was the same bus that was in the movie I could I could tell because they had hanging uh something or others from the windows uh shades that were very unique uh, and it was a very unique color and it was an old bus and like you know it was that was the bus i remember the hotel scene um that was a hotel we stayed at in durham uh for the short time that we got to stay there um before we found a, a permanent place um and you know the clubhouse the walk down the clubhouse to get to the clubhouse that was the same the ball i mean where where any savoy sat in the stands that was that was it was all legit yeah. the dugout was the same the clubhouse they probably changed it just a little bit but um i don't remember going ever going into the manager's office but uh, i'm sure that was very close uh but it was you know the movie is such a close depiction of of how minor league baseball really is and they you know Kevin Costner did a heck of a job of explaining that, and uh, it showed it showed real, real well. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why it still stands the test of time to this day, that you watch it now, and, and, you, and it's just as enjoyable as it was day one. Absolutely. No, no doubt about it. All right, so when Bull Drum was becoming a huge hit in 1988, you were playing for Palm Springs yes. in the California League. Average weather in June and July is 104 to 108, and according to baseball reference, the team drew a total of 70,000 fans, not for a weekend, not for a week, not for a month, but the entire season they drew 70,000 fans, which averages out to 860 per game. Yeah, the funny thing is, is uh, Palm Springs, 
I was very close to home, hour and a half drive from, from Orange County. And um, uh, one of those perks was my parents actually owned a condo in Palm Desert, which is, you know, 15 minutes away. To, to on the drive to the to the stadium, so I go well. Heck, this is this is going to work out perfect. But what really shocked me was getting in my car. I don't think I had a car. I didn't have a car that had the temperature gauge at the time. So when you're driving by the bank and the bank had it, it said 115 one day. And I'm going, holy cow, that's a that's hot. But it didn't feel that hot. Again, I'm 87, whatever year that was. Um, I was 22 years old, 23 years old, and, and I, I just wanted to play ball. I didn't care. I, didn't, I was shocked to hear that you said 70,000 people. I don't even remember. I thought it drew better than that. You know, I don't remember the fans in the stands. All I remember is my teammates and how good of a group we had and how fun it was to play with them and how much, you know, I think we won enough. I think we won a lot of games, and we were in the playoffs. Um, I, got, I remember the last game of the year. This is kind of a, uh, a, a, a good story, but um, we're playing a, a, a game, and I get hit in the head with a fastball at 90. What kind of helmet are you wearing back then? It was a legit helmet, okay. a regular, regular helmet. didn't have the face guard at the time, but it was a regular helmet. And I laid on the ground, and I was out for a good 5, 10 seconds. They actually brought an ambulance on the field to take me off the field. I go to the hospital. Check me out. I don't know if it was a one, two, three, you know, follow my finger thing. But that's all I remember doing. Came back to the field to watch the end of that game played the next day because it was the playoffs. Right. You know, I didn't know any better. But I, I, I sure as heck know that if that happened today, when somebody's, if somebody, I've never seen an ambulance on the field ever again, thank God, but they would never play the next day. It would be in concussion protocol and everything would go, uh, that, that follow that procedure. But, Maybe that's why my, my I've lost mm-hmm. a few brain cells along the way. Uh, I don't remember as much as I used to, but that may have had something to do with it. You also played baseball in Canada. You oh, yeah. played in Edmonton, and you played in Vancouver, especially in April. What are your memories of playing baseball in Canada? Oh, uh, it was it was chilly. It was um, uh, you know Edmonton was great because that's back when the hockey team was really really good, and you know what? When the hockey season was over. Um, they would the fans would come out and they would support you like crazy. Both Edmonton and Vancouver, they would support you like crazy because the the thing that the reason they would they would come out was because the sun would come out. And it was it, there were times when it was the first of June, like right about now, where we had a snowstorm in Edmonton or Vancouver or Calgary, one of those towns. I don't remember. I think it was Vancouver one year. You know, we played a Sunday day game, and, you know, people are I mean, they're not taking off their clothes, but, you know, women are wearing tank tops and bathing suits, and, you know, guys are taking their tops off, and they're just enjoying the sun and their beverages, their adult beverages, and they're having a blast. And the next thing you know, there's a storm that came in the next day, and it snowed us out for <laughs> two days, which was like, you got to be kidding me. But that's... That's baseball up north, mm-hmm. and um, you know, thank you know, thank God, you know, it, it's, it's cold in, in Reno early in the season too, but nothing like nothing like Canada. Yeah, so the, like like you said, this is Edmonton's heyday for Wayne Gretzky and Mark Messier. How often would you get a, like a day game where you could go watch them at you night? Know, did you ever get a chance to meet them or anything? Well, some of the guys did, yeah. and my unfortunate uh, background, I wasn't really a hockey guy. I remember one time we stayed in the same hotel in Edmonton at the start of the year. And I saw Marty McSorley walking down the street or in the hotel lobby or somewhere. But never, you know, outside of that, a few of the guys went to a couple of the games. 
but I, I just wasn't a fan. You know, I became a fan when Gretzky went to L.A., mm-hmm. of all places, because I was an L.A. guy, and, you know, that kind of, that's why, you know, it, he brought he brought more hockey people into the in the world because he made that move. But uh, now I wish I would have, but um, I didn't. As hard as PCL travel is nowadays, I can't imagine how hard it would be after nine eleven going in and out of Canada. But what was it like going in and out of customs on a regular basis throughout the season? It wasn't that bad. I mean, I don't remember it being being bad at all. I mean, I. Uh, um, it was just part of the process. It's like anything else in minor league baseball. You know, the, the poor living conditions I talked about earlier. Well, I, you didn't know any better. I mean, you didn't know. I mean, this ballpark here in Albuquerque is off the charts right now. But the old one wasn't nearly this nice. But we played in it because we were just supposed, supposed to. And, you know, you just did what you were supposed to do. And uh, you didn't know any better because there wasn't anything else to really compare it to. Now we have all these really nice places to go play, and you can tell that some of them aren't up to par as they are uh, as some of these really nice ones. So um, you just knew you had to do it, and uh, you did it, you know, bottom line. So when I was going back through the, the places that you played and looking at your teammates, I always get fascinated by the rehabbing guys. So you grew up in L.A. in the early 80s at the peak of Fernando Mania, and yeah. now Fernando was on a rehab assignment yeah. at AAA or just on a comeback trail or whatever it was. What was that like to have Fernando as a teammate after growing up watching him? You know, you almost forget about Fernando but because and he really, really treated us really well. And I was very fortunate. I got, I'm, a, I'm a big-time golfer, and I got hooked up playing golf with Fernando two or three times. Uh, I don't have any great stories about that outside of he could hit the ball a long way, and he really got after it. He teed the ball up real high and just smoked it left-handed. And, you know, I don't remember us gambling of any sort back then, but um, he really treated us really well. I mean, he, he was trying to get back to the big leagues. He ended up getting back to the big leagues. Uh, I, you know, it's, uh, I don't think he would remember guys like me, but he sure treated us like – regular teammates and and with all the fame and that that he had in 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 the past and and trying to work his way back to the big leagues but he was a fun fun guy to be around you made your major league debut on august 15th 1991 at the metrodome how did you find out you were going to the major leagues funny story it was uh, not funny it's just the story goes uh i'm renting this uh condo right downtown edmonton and with my wife at the time, and a, a teammate, Tim Burcham, w- w- and his wife, and it was kind of one of those scenarios where I, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to be a big leaguer because I kept putting up good numbers, good numbers, and they would always take somebody else. Our numbers would would be comparable with that guy, but I would never, I would just just miss get being the guy that gets called up. So I never really thought that it was going to happen, but that's what makes baseball so crazy is when you least expect it it happens and i remember getting a call at like 2 30 in the morning a.m had a phone line regular phone line out in the kitchen he him and his wife were sleeping on the couch i'm in the bedroom and the phone's ringing nobody's answering so i go out there and i answer the phone and it's my manager saying hey got the greatest news in the world for you you're going to the big leagues and that's when it all started it was one of those blessings again i've been blessed so many times in my life but um, I got to go back home to Anaheim where I grew up and play my, you know, be in the uniform uh, there in a stadium that I must have been to uh, the hundred thousands of times or whatever. 
and uh, you know um, was able to uh, get my get my feet wet there. I got one at bat in that in that first call up of nine days uh, off a of side armor Terry Leach. Mm-hmm. I flew out to right field on an 0-2 pitch. He could have thrown it anywhere. I would have been swinging, and thank <laughs> God he didn't throw it in the dirt because I would have swung and missed. But uh, uh, that's that's how the, that's how my my call up went. When you got your first hit, it was off Jimmy Key. Yeah. Was your oldest son, CJ, in attendance by any chance, or was no. he probably back home? Uh, funny story. I keep saying funny story, but the story with that one is I I had um, Jimmy Key I'd faced, like, maybe that first mm-hmm. game that I got recalled back, and I got a couple of bats, and I didn't didn't do anything, hit a, hit a ball, fly ball or something, whatever. But uh, So I did face Jimmy Key twice. The second time that I got the hit – we were up in Toronto, so CJ was not uh, around then. Um, he wasn't in Toronto. But the story, as the story goes, I ended up getting two hits in that one game. My only two hits in the big leagues were in Toronto at the end of a September when the Toronto Blue Jays are trying to win a American League East uh, pennant, and there was 50,000 people in the stands. And um, he throws me another 0-2 pitch that I get just a like a little hanging change up out on the outer half of the plate, and I line it up the middle. Like, I didn't think I was ever going to get a hit because I was like 0 for 15 or 0 for 12 at the time, and I'd hit a couple balls hard. But that getting that first hit is extremely hard to do, and uh, I ended up getting it off him. Then I came in the second uh, – my second hit came in that same game off of uh, David Wells. David Wells, so that's a pretty big name also. Yeah, absolutely. Now, back then, teams didn't – I'm going to use the phrase manipulate their roster the way that major league teams do now. Right. And you're stuck behind Wally Joyner. Yeah. And then you go to the White Sox organization and you're stuck behind Frank Thomas. Yeah. So that makes it really tough no matter what numbers you're putting up. Because you've had some really good seasons right. at AAA. Yeah, I did. And, 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 you know, the bottom line when I, you know, it's kind of like what I, what I, how I use it now in my role as a manager or a coach is if you're good enough to play in the big leagues, you're going to play in the big leagues. Because there's too many other teams out there that, that could want you to, to play. But just because I was stuck behind Wally Joyner and, and another guy in the same organization, Lee Stevens, would always get the call before I did. Um, and then, you know, I went to the White Sox of all teams, and Frank Thomas, the Hall of Famer, is playing there. Why would you ever go to the White Sox? I had a choice. I, did, I chose to Why go there. Why did you go to the White Sox? Well, I th- Frank was coming off an injury, and I didn't, they, you know, I didn't think he was going to be healthy. Or, you know, maybe he would be healthy and then not get hurt a little bit along the way, but the big horse never got hurt. Yeah. And, uh, and I didn't get a, a, much of an opportunity there, but I did get back to the big leagues with the White Sox for a short, another cup of coffee. And I wouldn't change anything with my with my career. Uh, I thought I could have, you know, could have gotten a few more days in the big leagues or whatever. But as it turns out, my 41 days in the big leagues was 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 all that was uh, in the plans, and and uh, and I'll, I'll take them and run with them. 41 days. Yeah. 41 days. I love it. Your final season as a player, 1995 the White Sox AAA team. Tell me about the final game of your playing career. Yeah. Um, I, I've decided to uh, retire. And um, I, 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 the reason I decided this was because I wasn't having much success anymore. Plus, I'd already been asked twice, two separate years, times prior to this year starting, that year starting in 95, do you want to be a coach? And that's kind of the way of saying you're done. <laughs> right. But I wasn't again. I, my brain cells weren't really working. I, you know, I didn't really realize that at the time because I thought I could still play in the big league. So I ended up, I go 95. Uh, I'm playing in Nashville, and I'm basically DHing against uh, left-handed pitching, not having much success, and there needed to be a roster move to take place. And my manager at the time, his name was Rick Rennick, 
And he approached me and uh, Danny Evans, who was a big league general manager yeah, back yeah. in the day. You may know him. Um, Great guy. Ron Schuler, uh, who was the GM. Danny was the assistant GM with the with um, the White Sox at the time. And I think he was in town. And he, you know, he mentioned, "Hey, what have you thought about coaching again?" You know, and I knew right when he was asked of me that I was going to take it because it's like three strikes and you're out. You yeah. never know if you're going to get that chance again. And I needed to do something with my life because I wasn't a highly educated man and I didn't want to go back to school and I didn't want to drive for UPS, which I did. I didn't want to work at Disneyland, which I did. And, I, you know, I just, I mean, those are great jobs, but I just, I wanted to be a baseball guy. So I took the job and I knew that this this last three-game series was going to be it for me. So I, I'm, in the, I'm in the starting lineup on the first of this three-game series. My first at bat, I lace a double in the gap. And I'm standing on second base, and I go, you know what? You should just walk off right now. Nobody will be upset with you. you got to hit your last at bat. You could do this. But I, I down deep, I knew that wasn't the right thing to do, and I knew we were a little short on the bench, and I would put our team in, 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 a, in a little bit of a bind. So I stayed in the game. Next at bat, another double. I go, okay, now you got to do it. I mean, you can't get, you haven't gotten two hits in a game, and let alone three, uh, to keep this going. So, um, but I stayed in the game, and of course, the next two at bats, I end up striking out, strike out. And uh, the next day, the, the the second game of the series, I was in the lineup. I came in to tell the manager, hey, why don't you play so and so? Because I'm not going to be here in two days, and he's going to be here all year. Just let let him play, and I'll I'll be ready if you need me. So I didn't play that day. Then the third day comes. I'm not in the lineup, and we're losing ten to two to the Iowa Cubs. And my manager comes up to me and says, "Hey, you're leading off the bottom of the ninth inning in this game." And I go, "Okay, that's great." So I proceed to get my bat, my brand new bat, you know, tarred up. I didn't wear batting gloves at the time, uh, and I got, you know, it's all ready to go. Uh, never swung with this bat before. I don't even think I took BP for two days. But the pitcher was by the name of Rich Garces. He pitched quite a bit oh, yeah. in the big leagues. Um, and he he didn't groove me a fastball, but I sure took it like, I mean, I, I, I was ready for his 95-mile-an-hour fastball. And it was really right down the middle of the plate, and I hit it off the scoreboard. The guitar scoreboard. The guitar scoreboard in Nashville and left center field. And it's a memory. And, you know, the best part about it, then that was absolutely going to be the last at bat and i did it in that fashion and run around the bases with a couple friends on the other team you know playing positions i played against him for a long time and i just it was just i don't know even know what the word surreal means but let's just use yeah. it here because it was just one of those perfectly timed and uh situations that uh you know something really really good happened so you homered in your first game as a professional and you homered in your last at bat yeah. as a professional. I, I, I forget the first one the first game Home run, but it definitely took place, yeah. and uh, and uh, so it is. It is. It is a nice bookends. Yeah, it's really neat. How did you meet Terry Francona? Um, Terry Francona was my manager. He was in the White Sox organization as a Double A manager, and I was in Triple A at the time. Uh, Tito was the hitting coach. The 1994 for the very first year of the Arizona Fall League. Okay. Grady Little was the manager. Tito was the hitting coach. That was when I first got to know him outside of a hello in the clubhouse as a, as a AAA player, and he's a double-A manager. So I didn't even really get to know him that well. But that was when we got to know each other really well. And uh, a friendship started, and from there, 
you know, we've we've done a lot of different things together, and one of those is we played a lot of golf together. Yeah, and you played golf with a with a pretty decent basketball fella. Yeah, yeah. This is this is probably the best story uh, that I have. So, Ter- so it took me twenty seven minutes to get your best story. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so Tito and I, you know, we're going to spring training in ninety five, and this greatest basketball player of all time, Michael Jordan, just got done playing the ninety four season with Tito in, in Birmingham, Alabama. And he's in spring training with the White Sox. He's trying to go to AAA and do this. Uh, it was unfortunate that it was the year of the strike. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, and they wanted MJ to cross the picket line, right? Yeah, I'm sure they did. Yeah, you know, but he didn't want anything to do with that. And uh, uh, so that was his way of getting back into the NBA, which is where he needed to be. So my story is I'm a golfer, Tito's a golfer, and Jordan's a golfer. And... Frank Terry goes, hey, you want to play golf with Jordan and I? <laughs> you only have to ask me once, pal. So This is not like you want to be a coach. You're right. You have to this, ask is, this is like the real deal. This is like as good as it's going to get. So uh, the best story I have, I ended up playing golf with him four times, but the very first time we went out. Now, we've had spring training for maybe seven to ten days up to this point, and Jordan's locker was fairly close to mine, maybe one locker away. Uh, and, you know, we talk and we say hi, and but he's Michael Jordan. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know a lot of baseball people in my life that have been Hall of Famers for that matter. But I feel like they're my peers, and they're, not just, they're just regular guys that I see very regularly, and they do what I tried to do. But Michael Jordan, another sport, the greatest of all time. You know, like I'm a bit, I would love to meet Tiger Woods, or I'd love to meet Jack Nicklaus, you know, uh, but I never did. But I also, but, so Jordan is... Uh, is there. We're going to go play golf. We're playing the TPC of Prestantia and Sarasota, Florida. How I remember all this stuff, I have no idea. We drive up to his house, which he's renting for spring training, which is right on the first fairway of this very nice golf course. There's three or four or five golf carts on his back patio. He's got a buddy. He's got a guy that's his guy that says he takes care of all of his stuff. I think his name was George. George says, hey, T- hey uh, MJ, uh, your time's ready. So we just walked into the house. I don't even know where my clubs are, I don't know where my shoes are, none of this stuff. So we go in the carts and we're driving up to the first tee. We're going to tee off. And, you know, so I asked Tito, I go, what do you think I should bet this guy? Because I know he likes to gamble. I love to gamble. And we're playing golf, which is the one of the best sports to gamble, or, you know, gamble to, to play in golf. So he goes, just play him for whatever, just play him for what I play him for. Just play him for a $20 bet which at the time, I'm still a minor leaguer. It's well above my normal betting uh, thing. So that's, that's my plan going into it. So we get to the first tee box, and it's kind of up a hill, and I'm trying to get my shoes on. I'm trying to get my balls ripped because we just went right from the car at the house to the golf carts to the first tee, and I didn't get a chance to hit balls or nothing, but it doesn't matter. I'm playing with Jordan. So we get to that first tee box, and he's, Jordan's, you know, he's up there warming up on the top of the thing, and he's, he starts to talk to... Uh, Walt Reniak, the old White Sox yeah. hitting coach, was the, was the other guy that was in the group, and he goes, "Hey, Walt, you and I are going to be partners. We'll play Tito, and we'll play Tito." And he didn't say my name at the time, but um, and then he goes, "We'll play our same same game to to Walt. Like that's they got a side game." And he looks over at Tito, "Hey, Tito, we gonna, what are we we, we going to play the same game?" Tito nods and said, "Yeah, we're playing same game." And then he says to me, "This is the best thing in the world. Hey, crony, what are we playing for?" And I go, gee, many Christmas. Michael Jordan knows my name. Like, he just called me my nickname, Tony. And this is like, and I'm saying all this stuff to my head. And he's, and I'm hesitating. I didn't answer him right away. And he goes, he says to me, 
and this is the great line here. He goes, I'll play you for whatever you want because I know you're a hell of a lot more nervous playing with me than I am playing with you. And he was so right. I was, I was nervous. And I said, I'll play you for the same bet that Tito's got. And, uh, and we had a blast. Um, he was such a, such a great human being. I, I, don't know how, I don't know what it's like to walk in shoes like he has to walk in on a daily basis. Well, everybody wants a piece of him. Uh, but a couple times we would, you know, he doesn't sign on the golf course, and his bodyguard, George, would always be there to kind of push people away. But everybody wanted to, you know, get a picture or whatever. And, um, but he would always, he'd always apologize, say, hey, I'm sorry I don't sign on the golf course or whatever. But uh, we, the front nine of this, of this match we played the very first time, I'm up three bets on him. And I'm feeling pretty good, right? So we're driving from the ninth green to the tenth tee box, and there's a guy standing there. You know, we have to drive a little ways. He's got a basketball under his arm, a pair of spy, a pair of uh, Jordan, um, you know, shoes, and like hundred, like I don't know, ten hundred dollar bills draped across there. Like, if you sign these, I'll give you a thousand. I don't even yeah. know how much it was. So Jordan whizzes by them and says, "Hey." I don't sign on the golf course, but the way I'm playing, I may need that money. You may see me in the parking lot after the round. Like, just joking around like a normal guy, you know. Um, so he ended up pressing the, pressing the bet on the 10th tee, and he ended up beating me five ways on the back. So I have to fork over $100 to Michael Jordan. And I, and I, and I'm not, I don't have a $100 bill like he does, you know. So I got 20s and 10s, and I think I got some couple ones in there, and I handed it over to Tito, him. Tito, can I borrow $5? <laughs> exactly. You know, so, you know, but he, he sure as heck took it because that's how, how, you know, you do. You, yeah. you lose a wager, you, you got to pay up. And uh, he took it. And he, he was a, a very competitive person. Play you for a nickel. I mean, play cards in the clubhouse, big cribbage player. You know, he'll play you for whatever. He just wants to What win. was the banter like on the golf course with, with Michael? You know, I don't remember a whole lot. I remember in the four rounds that I played with him, I made one birdie, which I'm a pretty good player, and to make only one birdie was was odd. But I only lost money to him that one time, so I held my I held my own. Okay. Um, but you know, I don't you know, I don't remember any major needling or you know you know. But I remember reaching a par five in two, and I rolled up my eagle putt to about 25 feet, so I I hit a terrible putt. And Jordan reached the, th- the, the hole in two also, but he rolls in his eagle putt, and he gives me my 25-foot birdie putt, and that was the only birdie putt I, birdie I made in the four rounds. But I held my own. I uh, was very lucky to have had that uh, situation happen. I guess the, another part of this Michael Jordan story that uh, is really, really uh, cool is, so he, ha- he ends up going back to, ba- to basketball. I'm still there, uh, um, you know, in minor league camp. And I know the trainer real well, Herm Schneider. And I go in there for some treatment one morning, and Jordan's gone, but he, he left a box underneath this training table in the training room. And in, in the box is his baseball spikes. So I asked Herm Schneider one day, and I go, Hey, Hermie, what do you think about me getting a pair of those Jordan spikes? Sure, take one. I don't care. So I took one. I still got it to this day. It's 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 in my it's one of my prized possessions in my uh, collage of Hall of Fame signatures on this side and the and Jordan spikes in here and and those shoes. Believe it or not, memorabilia wise and the collectors of the world. I probably shouldn't be saying this, but I uh, hope this is. I mean, I hope I wish you all the best in the world, but you know, hope this podcast doesn't get it. But I have you know at that at the house. And those shoes are worth twenty 
30 grand. Oh, for sure. You know? Because, I mean, think about how many pairs of basketball shoes he wore in his career, but he only played a small amount of time baseball. There's yeah. only so many cleats that he wore. Right, and these are these are very much original. Uh, so you know, what's your address? What's your home address? I guess that, I mean, I, I think I live in Columbus, Ohio now, you know. <laughs> but um, No, but th- that, those those stories and those times were are invaluable, and so lucky to have the people like Terry Francona in my life to, to give me the opportunity to, to, to hang out with uh, one of the greatest uh, basketball players of all time. How much time between your final game as a player and your first game as a coach, approximately? Uh, a month. About a month. Yeah, I, I think I shut it down May 15th or 20th or mm-hmm. something like that, and uh, the season started in Pulaski, Virginia on after the draft, uh, you know, middle of, middle of June, so it was probably a month. They didn't have anybody else who was going to coach if you had said no, or did they? I don't know. They probably had a secondary plan, but they also knew that, dude, I you're done, yeah. you know, and they would have been a little, a little bit more honesty would have came out, and uh, they didn't really... They gave me an op- they gave me an option of what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. continue to play or this, and you know what I I definitely made the right choice. I had no regrets at all of of, of continuing to play. Uh, it's always a hard hard decision to make uh, because you you've played the game of baseball your whole life, and now you're at 31, 32 years old, whatever I was, and you're done. You know now what are you going to do? Well, I have this opportunity to do this, and it's the same stuff, and mm-hmm. it really was. I just didn't have to perform anymore, and then I got to I got to be a a manager. If, if my math is right, CJ was approximately five and Kevin was about two. Right, exactly. When did they start coming to the ballpark on a regular basis? Right then. They were they were there from that day on. Maybe Kevin quite maybe couldn't get out there at two years old, but CJ was uh, was out there at five, and Kevin probably the next year I was in Hickory, North Carolina, one of the greatest places I've ever uh, managed in. Um, would be out at the ballpark uh, doing their thing and, and catching fly balls and. Just straight playing, playing, playing ball. You yeah. know, and uh, it was, was as early as that. Was there any players that stand out where they, where your sons just naturally gravitated to that yeah. player? Yeah, uh, one of them uh, with the White Sox was Joe Creedy. I remember him. Third Joe baseman, Creedy, right? Yeah, third baseman. He was one on part of the 2005 uh, World Series team. Uh, would always, uh, I had Joe as a. Um, young high school signed player in, in low A ball went to double A or went to high A ball together and a year in double A so we had him like three straight years and the kids just sort of gravitated to it to it to him and to this day C J wears number twenty four because Joe Creedy wore twenty four really that's that's the story there because Joe was just you know and C J I don't know eight seven eight ten years old in that period just remembers how much Joe did for him. And now CJ's the big leaguer, and 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 we and Joe still texts me and congratulates me on 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 my kids, and you know he's retired in Kansas City area, and just he's 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 a, he's a father and doing his thing too. But it's really nice to have a story about something that you had. I didn't even know why CJ was 24, but he always wanted to be 24, and and and, and now he is again with the Twins, and uh, and that's the reason why. That's cool. I yeah. love that. Um, 2000, you managed AAA Colorado Springs. Mm-hmm. And again, if my math is right, I think you were 36. Yeah. And among the players who you managed, Steve Onaveris was 39 and Ed Vosberg was 38. <laughs> exactly. Now, I, you know, I, and I, Onaveris, I mean, they were, they were true pros, man. They, they knew that um, that first year I may have been a little green under the, the thumbs or however that statement goes, but um they didn't they treated me they they still respected the the position of the manager and uh 
I still see Ed Vosberg every once in a while. He's an Arizona guy, and, and, and the Diamondbacks invite him into spring training every once in a while. So we have some good stories uh, um, to, to continue to mash around. But uh, I, I, I'm this, this another golfing story is I played golf with Ed Vosberg in Colorado Springs one year. It was 2000, 2001, or 2002. And you don't normally play golf with your players, but I, but I did, and I had no problem with that. Um, but I had one hole in one in my life, and I, Ed Vosberg was on the course at, at the Springs Ranch Golf Course in Colorado Springs, 165-yard par 3, 8-iron, one hopped into the hole. One hopped. Jim Eppard was our, my hitting coach at the time. He was with us, and I thought they would get a little bit more excited, than, <laughs> but they couldn't see. It was sort of into the sun, and we, I didn't know it went in, but I did when I walked up to the ball and through the hole. Can I brag about my one hole-in-one? Yeah, absolutely. I'm either eight years old or nine years old. I'm in Escalon, California, which is not too far from Modesto. I'm with my grandfather. First of all, with my grandfather, we would get to the course before the employees did. I thought you paid for golf afterward because we would show up before they were there, and then we would play our nine holes, and then we would pay. So it's like, I don't know, whole. I have the trophy somewhere. It's not in my office. I have the trophy somewhere at home. And uh, it was about 70 or 80 yards, and I hit just this low line drive that I scalded, and it did like a 180. And because there was so much (laughs) dew that was on the ground, you could see the entire flight of the ball as it rolled. Pretty much from the tee all the way into the hole, and I've never heard my grandfather curse more in his life because he never had a hole-in-one, and his 8-year-old grandson just hit the worst shot ever and got a hole-in-one. That's the luck of the game right there. That's the exactly exactly true. You also managed Jerry DePoto at Colorado yeah, Springs. Your yeah. future boss? He was a future boss. Um, well, no, you know... Uh, I don't know if I've ever worked. No, God, I can't remember. If yeah, I, I wasn't quite sure because I know you were the Diamondbacks and he's been no, with the Diamondbacks. No, 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 he was never, not with the Diamondbacks. I was not with Jerry. Um, I was thinking maybe, but uh, that would have been our only connection uh, with teams that he's been with that I've been worked with outside of the Rockies. And he got he got in there after I, or I, I didn't get to the Diamondbacks when he was still okay. here. Okay. So, uh but yeah, you know, to, to see some of the players uh, that have I've, I've I've managed in the past or coached in the past to see where they've gone, let alone, uh, you know, to have the, to have the success they've had in the big leagues is really cool. And then to see somebody like a, a Jerry Depoto uh, become a, an executive and a, and a real, real you know a GM in, in the big leagues, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't know how that how that works. But it does. It works that way. And. Um, it's amazing how this baseball life, uh, I appreciate the heck out of you reminding me of all these uh, nice little memories along the path uh, because they are, they're super memories and, and uh, it, it really makes you uh, thankful for all the things that you've had to come across. Well, well, thank you for that. And keep that in mind when I ask this next question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so every AAA manager I've ever talked to has always said the best part of the job is telling someone that they're going to the major leagues, but more so than any other level a triple-A manager often has to tell a player you're being released and this might be the end of it. So especially considering what you went through as a player and how that subject basically was was broached to you, what has been your philosophy going back to Bull Durham? You know, the, the manager lights up a cigarette, yeah. he leans back, and he says this is the toughest job a manager has, but the organization's decided to make a change. Yeah. The line is very similar to that, and, 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 you, and you hate it being – the same line all the time, but it's such a difficult task to let somebody go. Uh, but I think down deep they can see the emotions that are coming out of you. 
with your words and maybe sometimes with your actions because I've 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 cried when I've released guys, um, and it's not it's not easy. Uh, but when you're a professional baseball player, because of how hard it is to do what we do, um, they know they understand. You know, there's been I don't even know of one where it's been you're the bad guy. Mm-hmm. You know, I hate this organization. You know. It's always the opposite. It's always like, gosh, I just want to say thank you for giving me the opportunity to do this. And I know, I understand. It's not your fault. Don't worry about it. You know, they're sort of consoling me when I want to console them. You know, oh, that's and, interesting. And, and it's, it's um, because they, they know how much you care. They know, they, and that's the whole, that's the mark of being a good coach is, is, is caring about the players and putting them uh, ahead of you and, and, uh, and 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 but there is a there is a job that you have to do, and some of it is is very is very very depressing and very sad. But uh, there's sometimes when it's extremely joyful too. Well, this is gonna be a much more joyful question. I'm pretty sure this was 2011. Both of your sons got drafted in the same year. Yeah. CJ first round, 17th overall by the Angels. Kevin gets drafted out of high school, third round. 92nd overall by the Mariners. Yeah, that was a great day. You know, I'm, I'm working for the uh, Detroit Tigers in, in Erie, Pennsylvania, as the, the AA manager. And as God has it, you know, we've been I've been blessed so many times in my life. There's a day off on the day of the draft, and the Tigers allow me to go home. I mean, I think I would have gone home anyways. I mean, I don't, you can't tell me what I can do on my yeah. day off. Let's say, but instead of going to play golf that day, I go. You know what? Let me go home for this, the draft. Be perfect. So I surprised them uh, for lunch. You know, my my mom lives in the area, and my daughter was there, and and I and I and I say, don't tell them I'm coming, but I'm gonna I'm gonna make the you know we have a big they have a big festivity plan, but we got the the high school that they both went to, and all the friends and the coaches, and are gonna go to this gym, this uh, workout facility that, that we went to, a very nice place, and um, we're gonna have a, a, a draft party, you know, and you don't know when. These guys are going to get drafted. You know, CJ was ahead of Kevin at that time. He was in high school, college, and CJ was mentioned that he was going to get drafted in the first round. So, you know, that's great. But uh, they were surprised to see me. Uh, we went to the party, and the draft starts. And you know, of all of all things, you know, CJ gets taken by the Angels. That's my team. That's our hometown team. That's my hometown team. You know, that's the team I played for. You know, I mean, I'm man, I have a little legacy there, so to speak. And you know, you're the guy. You got drafted by them. And you know, I, I was I was looking up at the at the TV. You know, the Dodgers were the pick before that. You know, and I was never a real big Dodger fan. And uh, it's funny because the kid that got drafted right before CJ, you don't know how they're going to say CJ's name. His name is Christopher John Crone Jr. He's my he's got the same name as me, but we don't know how they're going to say it. So the guy that was drafted before CJ, his name was Christopher. Withrow, right? Something like that. I think it's Chris Withrow because he played for the yeah. Isotopes. And and I and I and I don't remember his name, but it could very well be him. And you're thinking, oh, oh no, okay, so that that wasn't it because <laughs> you don't know. Yeah. I mean, you got all these stories, and they don't. Hey, we're going to take you here. We're going to take you here. Blah blah blah. But it never happens. And so then the Angels logo pops up with the very next pick, and I go, gosh, you know, I was telling a buddy who was sitting right next to me, you know what? This would be an absolutely perfect fit. Now I don't. I know a few. I know a lot of people in the game. Yeah, I know a few people over. I know a lot of people in the angel in pillar development, but not not many in the scouting area. And sure enough, you know, um, Bud Selig says the you know with the seventeenth pick in the first round of the two thousand eleven Major League Baseball draft, the 
California Angels of Anaheim select C.J. Crone out of University of Utah. And it was like, they said C. They said it, and then we just erupted, of yeah. course. Uh, and, the, and everybody had a blast. And, uh, you know, Kevin being drafted later in the third round, that was when I had, I had to leave. I got a red eye out that night. Uh, so that his draft was the next day or two. And um, he ends up not signing. He ends up going to TCU and having, a, you know, doing it and starting over there. But um, yeah, to have two kids get drafted at, in the same draft that high is, is was very very special. So both of your sons went to college, and I'm wondering when it came time for them to make that decision. How much did your experience in junior college ball, junior college ball, and knowing how hard the lower minors, how much was that part of their decision making process? I don't know if I, I know. I know we knew about the the difficulties of being a high school player uh, and their maturity levels. Uh, see, Kevin's maturity level was probably greater than CJ's at the time. The problem was that CJ really didn't have a real great high school career. Kevin set every record in the world in Arizona baseball as a senior in high school or his his high school career. So he was going to be had a, you know he could he was going to be drafted higher. But CJ needed to get a little seasoning in college. So. The White Sox drafted CJ in like the 44th round more as a favor because I was in the organization, so to speak, but that really didn't even count. So he ends up going to the University of Utah, and he could have went anywhere because he just sprouted like crazy and uh, and kind of tore it up right from the beginning, and he could have went to any school. So then CJ Kevin gets the opportunity to go to college, and now more colleges are on him because of his success, plus he's CJ's brother, and TCU comes calling, and his high school coach went to TCU. It was kind of just a perfect uh, combination of, uh, and, and, and we en- we ended up signing early with them, or you know, committing early to them, and um, and he really wanted to go there, and he turned down quite a bit of money to not go not go with the Mariners, and if you know, if he had it to do over, he probably would have signed because of how the college his college career wasn't as great as as good as it could have turned out, but it turned out to be a blessing that he ended up going there because he met his wife and friends that he'll have for his life and can't change that but his baseball playing thing wasn't as good as it, it could have been mm-hmm. but um so and that's he, interesting how how life unfolds that way yeah no, where no. what might have ha- what might have been best for him baseball wise wasn't as best for his personal life and right right and, but, and, he, but that's the better way i think it, I, it's, it's the only way yeah. it's the way that the path that you're supposed to be on and you don't even know what that path is but it's turned out great uh f- and he would never change a thing um but it took him a little while to get over that, you know, turning down that that money. But you know, like a, like, you don't make any money in this game in the minor leagues. You got to get to the big leagues mm-hmm. to do that. May third, two thousand fourteen, is when CJ made his major league debut. Tell us where various members of the family were on that day. <laughs> I am uh, the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks hitting coordinator uh, for the first year that year, and I'm in all, all in all of places. I'm in. The Dominican, okay, as far away from Anaheim, California, as you could possibly be, and um, as this story goes, we all have iPhones and what have you, and I'm not one thing. I'm not. I'm just not a FaceTimer. One of the reasons why I'm not a FaceTimer, I don't do any FaceTime, is because the only time in my entire life that I FaceTimed was when CJ FaceTimed me that he was getting called up to the big leagues. And I want that memory to be etched, in a, and I will do everything I can. To, when somebody tries to FaceTime me, I just I don't answer it, uh-huh. and I just say that that's the way it is. I'll text you or whatever. Uh-huh. And uh, so he was able to get a hold of me. I was able to get to Anaheim, fly out of uh, of um, of the Dominican, 
and I made it to the stadium in the fifth inning. Uh, I know the area real well. I grew up right there. I played there, so I know it. Uh, unfortunately, when I left the Dominican, I had some money stolen from me, and oh, I didn't no. have any cash on me. So I, I'm sitting at the airport, and, and, and John Wayne, I go, or as I'm going through this whole thing, I need to get some money out of the ATM to pay for the parking when I get to Anaheim Stadium. Uh, and I don't want to forget that. So, of course, I do forget that because I, I don't have very good memory. And as I'm driving up to, and I get off the freeway, I go, oh, I don't have any money. How am I going to pay for parking? But it was the fourth inning or whatever at the time. And I pull in, and it just, it's just wide open. There's nobody there to take any money. And it is the fourth inning. They shouldn't charge me, but I didn't realize that. And I pulled up, and I knew exactly where to park because that's where my buddy used to have season tickets. And I basically parked in the season ticket holder's parking. So I ran up to the gate, and I wanted to get into the stadium because CJ was just about ready to have his third at bat. I saw his first at bat 30,000 feet in the air, watching it on my iPad. For some reason, I bought the Internet uh-huh. to do this, and for some reason, it actually worked. It actually worked. To watch the game, to stream this video of him getting his first hit. I yelled. Hold, hold on, let me pause. When he yeah. gets his first hit and you're on the plane, what's your reaction and what are the people around you yeah. on the plane? No, I, I, I yell out. I go, I don't know, hell yeah or <laughs> whatever. And the lady sitting next to me knew we were kind of watching it together. Mm-hmm. I uh, didn't know her from Adam, but I yell out, "Hell yeah!" And and she's you know, what, and everybody's kind of looking over. Goes, hey, don't worry. And she got up and said, "Hey, don't worry. His son just got his first major league hit, and he's you know he's plays for the Angels." And then we got a bunch of cheers and in, yeah. in, the, in the whole plane. It was really cool. So we land. I forget. I get the rental car. I forget to get money. Uh, I drive up. Gates open, wide open. Season ticket parking. Run up to the gate. I just tell the gate, the ticket taker, okay, can I get in, can I get in real quick? My son's just making his major leave. I just want to see his says his bat. No, you know he does his job. Nope, can't do that. Got to go over and get a ticket. So I go, okay, and I go over there and I explain the situation. They give me a ticket right away. I run in there. He's already hit, made an out. Got a hit. He got a hit in his first two at bats. Um, and then uh, I go to the an usher, and I just explain to the usher, hey. My son's over there. He's, he's, he's playing first base for the Indians. His major league debut. Oh, yeah, he's having a great game. I go, yeah, I know. I, I just got here. I came in from the Dominican. Uh, is there any chance you could just let me go walk down there to the railing and just yell out his name? Yeah. You know, a dad yelling, CJ. Mm-hmm. Hey, Siege. Yeah. You know, and he would know that I'm there. Because I told him I don't know if I can get there. I'm, hell, I'm in the Dominican. He, you know, he goes, okay, just, you know, I'll, I'll do my best. So as I'm walking down the aisle... We get right to the dugout, the seats right in front of the dugout, and I look over to the right, and there's Thad Levine, the GM of the Texas, or the assistant GM of the Texas Rangers at the time, and I know him from the Rocky days, and he had an extra seat, and so I sat. He goes, "Here, you can sit here with me," and, and, and the usher said, "Oh, yeah, that's great, perfect." So I sat there, watched the remainder of the game from the fifth inning on with the GM or the assistant GM Thad Levine with the um, uh, Rangers. Um, CJ ends up getting another at bat, or a couple more at bats, but he gets a, a, a like a game-winning hit in the bottom of the eighth inning. It wasn't the bottom of the ninth. It wasn't a walk-off or anything. But and then to to go down to the family section after the game, they won the game. He did really well. Got three hits, and to see his expression when he sees me, because I didn't tell anybody. I mean, my other family members were sitting somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, <coughs> people came over. Excuse me. Came over from um, you know Arizona and. Uh, got to see that, so they, he knew they were there, but he didn't know I was there. And to have him see me and the smile on his face—it's—I I got a phone, a picture of it in my in my phone that I'll cherish forever. Just you know, of him smiling and me smiling, and you know, patting him on the on the chest and saying, you know, you you made it, kid. And that yeah. was really cool. 
That's so awesome. I yeah. love it. Yeah. I love it so much. Tell me about the decision. So last year you were the Diamondbacks roving hitting coordinator as Kevin makes it to AAA for the first time. Uh, tell me about the discussions this offseason that led to you becoming the manager of Reno, knowing that there was a decent chance your son would be yeah. one yeah. of your players. Uh, we had a lot of uh, movement in the coaching ranks um, in the Diamondbacks. We had a AAA manager who was supposed to be here. His name is Shelly Duncan. He was coming up from our AA affiliate, and um, he ended up getting a big league job. So he was out. So we had an opening in AAA. Um, our AA manager, uh, long story short, we, you know, we just couldn't. We, nobody was there to fill the job. Uh, we, it was sort of late in the process of the off season, and um, my boss. Mike Bell brought it up to me one day. Um, I said, what do you think about this? You know, you can do whatever you want. You can continue to be the hitting coordinator, which we love you doing that, or you can do the Reno job. We need somebody. And I'm just giving you an option. There's no pressure here. You can make the decision on your own. But when he asked the question, I knew what the answer was going to be because it was very simple. This is an absolute once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to do what, you just said I get to manage again, which I love managing. Loved hitting, coordinating too. It was a great job, um, but I can always do that again if that time if if it's presented to me. But this to be able to manage your own son and have the opportunity because he's really close. He's knocking on the door. He might get called up this year, and you might be the guy to do that calling up. So you put the plus minus thing chart together and say, well, what are you gonna? There was a whole ton of negatives. Mm-hmm. But the one positive was get to manage Kevin Crone, your own son, and with the possibility of getting to call him up to the big leagues. And it was a no-brainer. It was I knew the decision five seconds after he asked me. But I went through the process of the plus-minus chart yeah. and talking to other people, and and um, it was it was the decision that um, was very 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 simple. And so glad that I made it that way, and because it's been a, a great thing. Does he call you Skip? Does he call you Dad? Does he call you Chris? What, is, what does he call you? Or what did he call you in the dugout? He called me Dad. Like you don't, yeah, called your Dad? Yeah, he called me Dad, and it was really cool. Um, and he, and you know, he's got such a great personality, and I don't, and, and, and it's a, it could be, it could have been a real tough dis- situation, you know, uh, managing. Uh, I've managed other dads' sons that are, that are coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes those those players uh, didn't weren't performing as well as they should, and they didn't get to play as much as they should have, and maybe the dad thought they should have. And I was never really in that predicament because both CJ and Kevin, and Kevin in, in our organization, he just kept playing really well. Yeah. So there was no question about who should be playing. Kevin should be playing, and uh, so, but the clubhouse, the environment that. The, the clubhouse, this clubhouse, 20 years of managing, like I said, I don't know if I said it here earlier, but I've, I've said it numerous times this year that we have a super strong group of players. Yeah, we haven't won as many games as we'd like to, to do, but that doesn't, I mean, it matters, but it's not the end of the world. Um, the camaraderie, the way they get along, the, the joking around, the way they pull for each other is off the charts. It's special. Two, three times in my 20-year career where I've had this and Kevin added a lot to that and they Kevin well I'm not saying he was the alpha male in the room but everybody everything sort of went through Kevin hey what are we doing after the game Kevin mm-hmm. hey what are we what, what's going on what are we doing now through Kevin or you know and, 
uh, there's some veterans down in that clubhouse that played in the big leagues, and and but they 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 all had an opinion. Everybody had an opinion. It didn't wasn't all about Kevin. Don't get me wrong, but Kevin had such a good relationship with everybody, as did everybody else in that clubhouse, because everybody just liked each other. Whether it was playing cards or giving a guy a hard time about this or that or whatever, they did it, and they did it in the best, most professional manner. It was a joy to watch. So it was always it it was easy. Mm-hmm. And they were pulling for Kevin, you know, especially with the start that he got off to. Like, when is he going to get called up for crying out loud? Yeah. And when it happened. So tell they, us the story. What yeah, this, the story is, you know, uh, one of the, you know, you, you, you sit around and you have this job title and you, you know it's probably going to happen, especially with the start that he got off to. And, and you kind of script something out, like, how are you going to do this? And you think about two or three scenarios that well this could happen i could do it this way or that could happen i could do it that way or let's say we're playing here in albuquerque and i get the call earlier in the day and he doesn't have to fly out till tomorrow morning well i'll have him hit third in the lineup like he always did but i'll i'll make a hitting change instead of a pitching change and i'll be hugging him in the on deck circle like hey dude you're going to the big leagues and it would be kind of cool because i'd tell the guy on the bench the trainer to get it on video and it'll be out there forever uh-huh. that would have been cool but it didn't happen that way nothing in this scripted life that we sometimes want to live in is it, it wasn't perfect it was perfect because it was unscripted you know mike bell calls me my boss and says hey kevin's gonna needs to go up but it's not for sure that he's going to get activated oh and i said i don't care this is as close as he's ever going to go and i'm fired up you don't have to apologize about everything this is the greatest day of my life um so I went I went down to the front desk. We were actually actually in El Paso. I went down to the front desk to get his room number. I actually texted him and said, Hey, your sister Carly's coming to town. It would be nice if we set some things up with her and your wife Delaney to do some things together. Well, I'm texting Kevin and I haven't texted him at all this year because he's with me the whole time. So he said I knew something was up. <laughs> and I'm trying to play it off like I hey, dude, I just want to see you, yeah. you know? But he he said, he said, I texted him twice this year, and he thought the first time was sort of a joke also. I don't even remember what that one was, but he, 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 he caught me. He, and then, so I knock on the door. I go, dude, this is it, buddy. You're going to the big leagues. And it was a hug and a high five and a tears of joy. And I'll tell you, the, the best part about this story was when you have a 26-year-old son, you've seen him and heard him cry a whole bunch of times in their life. But this cry, this cry of happiness, of joy that we're both having, where I'm hugging this big bear of a man, this 6'5", 260-pound man, and I'm hugging him, and I hear him sobbing on my shoulder. Sobs of joy, like, you know, that little sniffle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's the great, it was the greatest sound I've ever heard in my life, you know, and uh, he remembers it because he told the same story, too, when, he got, when they asked him about it. And... Um, that was the unscripted, the best version this, that, that this could have ever taken. And you know, I, I gotta, I gotta give the White Sox or the uh, t- uh, the Diamondbacks a ton of credit because they they flew out me, they flew out my ex-wife and my daughter and family, and we all got to go out in first class, stayed at the big league hotel, took care of all the, flew out Kevin's wife uh, to experience this once in a lifetime experience of him of him making his big league debut in san francisco of all places one of the best uh, big league ballparks out there 
So for CJ, you were hustling and just barely got back. For Kevin's debut, you got to watch the whole thing. How much were you able to just wander around and soak up the atmosphere I, of a gorgeous ballpark? I, I wandered, and I, I, I'm a. When I'm watching my kids play, I'm a. I don't want to sit by anybody, and I was very fortunate to uh, contact one of our, our people, and I was able to get scout seats right behind the plate, and there was no scouts, no Diamondback employee was there. It was so it was just me with four seats, and the other family member was some friends. They were sitting down the line, which they know me. Mm-hmm. Like the high school days, they'd be sitting in the stands behind home plate. I'd be over the left field fence, you know, watching the game because I couldn't. I just felt like that's where I belonged. I, I didn't want to. I, I wasn't a boisterous dad. I wasn't, you know, like this that. I just wanted to enjoy it, sort of on my own mm-hmm. time. And you know, he got that first big league at bat his uh, the first day. Um, on a Friday night, just missed a double by a couple feet, ended up striking out, big deal. He's in the books. The next day he starts, uh, makes a, hits a ball, his first at bat into the right center field gap, and a big leaguer, Kevin Pillar, makes a diving play to Rob that's a, that, that maybe nobody else makes. Just like Sean Abner. Yes, exactly, exactly. Great call. He makes the play, uh, doesn't get a hit, um, but it, uh, his third at bat he ends up lining a double down the left field line for his first big league hit, and I'm there watching it by myself. Actually, his daughter, his, 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 uh, my daughter-in-law, his wife, was sitting next to me at that, that, that game, which was really cool because we don't get to do that very often. Um, and, you know, they were interviewing me during the game before it happened, and then, um, you know, it happened. And uh, I just had to take a break. You know, I, w- I went up to the radio booth after it happened, and they interviewed me up there, too, because, you know, Phoenix is home for us, and, uh, you know, everybody knows me because I'm in the organization. It's a really cool situation, and they were very, very happy. So after that, I'm walking down, and I got no other commitments, and it's a beautiful day, and I just, you know, so I start walking around to the backside of the outfield and just being a regular fan, and I sit out there, and I look out at the bay, and I end up buying a Coors Light just to celebrate. I take a picture of the Coors Light and send it to Kevin saying, hey, Cheers to you, brother. You you did it, and um, just again, all by myself. I wanted. That's how I am. That's how I've always been, and uh, everybody knows that. And uh, it couldn't have been a it couldn't have been a better experience. And like I said, I can't thank the Diamondbacks enough for letting that be the case for me and my family. I got tipped off to this by Ryan Radke, the uh, play-by-play announcer for your Reno Aces, that the number of players who have reached the major leagues and then have had not just one but two sons reach yeah. the major leagues there's not a lot of them no it's it's a it's a it's uh it's a list i actually made up and i shared with uh, ryan the other day 16 families have done it uh 17 have done it overall but the hairston family jerry hairston and his family is uh they did it twice you know so they only count as one but they could be two so it could be 17 it could be 16 i could have been the on the 17th one and, and of those 17 families let's say i personally know nine of them nine of the families so it's even though it's a very small group to even know uh, over half of them is 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 amazing in itself so um very very blessed i can't say it enough how 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 the blessings just continue to flow uh, for my family and, and myself and and uh very grateful and uh you know just keep uh keep plugging away do you happen to know how many times both of your sons have homered on the same day? This year, I do know that. Uh, I think. Do you have the number? No, I okay, don't. Okay, good. Because I'm going to. I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. So whatever at all. number you say, it's going to be correct. I think it was four times this year where they both homered on the same day. 
Uh, last year it was like w- once or twice. I want to say it could have been five this year because I, I keep the uh, the updates on my phone because I you know um, and then I take a snapshot and say hey dad's proud again you yeah. know you guys are kicking butt you know there's nothing better than homer by both boys you know in the same day um, so I think I took five screenshots could have been four uh, doesn't really matter but uh, when that happens again it's just you know joy and uh, blessed. Well, Father's Day is a couple of weeks from now, so an early happy Father's Day. Um, I really appreciate This was really that. fun. This is awesome. Thank you so much for all the wonderful stories. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me, and I enjoyed the heck out of this. That was Chris Crone, and this is Life Around the Seams.